Hello, this is David Sangster, lead pastor at New Life Church. Thank you for joining us today for our podcast. It's our goal to help you grow in your faith and discover all that God has for you. I hope you're encouraged, challenged, and inspired. Enjoy the message. All right, so let's get into today's message. Am I missing anything, guys? I'm kind of, we're good. Okay, I got a thumbs up. We're good to go. All right, today we are back in our series on how to read the Bible. And like I I was talking to some people this morning, I said, this is a very Sunday school series. Uh, We used to have this thing that we used to call Sunday school. And people would come and listen to a sermon before the sermon. People used to do that. Can you believe it? That's how it was. But what would happen in a Sunday school format is that a lot of the... the, um, academic side of faith would be tackled and discussed, and you would learn things like, you know, how to memorize all the books of the Bible. They even had little songs for it. And also how to quickly find references in the Bible. They would talk about the Old Testament, what is important about it, the New Testament, how do we use it. They would talk about all these academic things, but we don't have Sunday school anymore because nobody came to Sunday school. Around the country, Sunday schools have gone away. We've incorporated life groups, but that's not the same thing. So I've decided this year we're doing a periodic foundations series, and we started with the Ten Commandments at the beginning of the year. We recently just talked about what sanctification is, and now we're talking about what, how do you read this Bible that we have been given, this Bible that is so valuable to us Sometimes it's lost on us how to actually read it. So this may seem a little academic today, but my goal, my hope is this, guys, that this series will elevate your view of the Scriptures, that you will see the Scriptures for what they are, the most valuable tool for life. I mean... I know most of you guys don't do this, but there's this thing called a user's manual that goes out with most products. And the guys take them and they go, I can do this. The ladies, on the other hand, will like study it. My wife won't even open her phone when she gets a new phone. It drives me crazy. I don't, when I get a new phone, I'm like, open it. I don't know how to use it, but I can, it's beautiful. She'll, she'll, keep it in the, she'll keep it in the package until she's read the user's manual. That, it's weird. (laughs) But here's the thing. She knows how to use that thing inside and out, whereas I'm like, (laughs) you should have seen it the other day. I had a uh, Peru missions trip training day, and there were some videos that we took, and you should have seen eight middle-aged pastors trying to airdrop something. Like, it took us forever to figure out how to use this one simple function on our phone. Anyway, what I'm saying is this. This is, this is the manual. This is how you know how this world and your life functions best. When we don't use this, things break down and we don't know how to fix it. So this is vitally important. So I want you to know how to read the Bible. And much of the information I'm getting, like I said last week, is from this book, How to Read the Bible for All That It's Worth. And if we understand the worth of the Bible, we'll know how important that is. All right, 
So today's message is called Old Wineskins. We'll get to that later. Big idea for the message is this. Jesus' personal fulfillment and interpretation of the Old Testament has lasting authority for the church. Let me read that again. Jesus' personal fulfillment and interpretation of the Old Testament has lasting authority for the church. And they're going to leave that up for a little bit for all you note takers, okay? So last week we talked about how Jesus is the Word of God, right? He's the Word of God and how he is the key. Or as we talked about like last week, the Rosetta Stone. He is the Rosetta Stone that unpacks uh, the understanding of who God is. This week we will discuss how Jesus unlocks our understanding of the Old Testament, focusing on understanding it is both narrative and law. Those are the two things we're going to talk about today in the Old Testament, narrative and law. Those are two huge parts of the Old Testament. And how, how do they factor into what we do? Let's tackle narrative first. Okay, narrative. Narrative. According to how to read your Bible for all it's worth, the single most common type of literature in the Bible is narrative. Stories. In fact, over 40% of the Old Testament is narrative. And the Old Testament itself constitutes three quarters of the book of the entire Bible. So that's a lot of narrative in the Old Testament. It's stories. Okay? And this is going to go back to your your, uh, elementary English class. Ready? Here we go. All narrative have three basic parts. Character, plot, and plot resolution. Every story that's worth anything has those three. You'll notice that when people try to get avant-garde with their stories, they'll take one of those out, and everybody's like, what just happened? My brain can't function like that. Um, So there's three main character, plot, and plot resolution. This is most narratives, uh, uh, that is most narratives presuppose some kind of conflict or tension that needs resolving. In traditional literature terms, the characters are the, anybody know? pro Antagonist. That's the primary person in the story. The antagonist, the person who brings about the conflict or tension. And sometimes the agonist. Ever heard of that? That's you, by the way, in this story. The other major characters in the story who get involved in the struggle. Okay? In the Bible story, God is the protagonist. God is the protagonist, not you. I'm going to let you in a little secret. It's not about you. It's not about, well, no, no, it's not about me. God is the protagonist. Okay? Um, Satan or opposing people or, or powers are the antagonists, and God's people are the agonists. All right? Three levels of narrative. So here we go. In, when you look at the Old Testament narratives, you need to look at them in three different ways. Now, this, I'm told you this is getting a little bit technical, but here we go. Okay? The three levels of narrative should help you read, study the Old Testament narratives to realize that the story is being told, in effect, in three levels. Here's the three levels. Ready? The third, or top level, is 
often called the meta-narrative. This level has to do with the whole universal plan of God working out through his creation and focusing primarily on God's chosen people. So this is the meta-narrative. This is Genesis to Revelation. Okay, This is the underlying meta-narrative that kind of flows throughout the entire scriptures. The key aspects of the plot at the, at the top level are the, the initial creation itself, the fall of humanity, the power and universal problem of sin, the need for redemption, and Christ's incarnation and sacrifice. That's the, that's the meta-narrative. It goes from cover to cover. We refer to this as the story of redemption or redemptive history. This entire thing is the story of redemption, okay? Now, the second level is the story of God's redeeming a people for his name. These people are, called, are represented twice by the original covenant, okay, way back here, the original covenant, and the, um, and the new covenant. The Old Testament deals with this first covenant, the story of the people of God. So uh, in, in, the, in the covenant narrative, we have the old covenant and the new covenant. And that's pretty much uh, bisected by the Old and New Testament. So the Old Testament deals with the covenant with Israel. So the call of Abraham, the patriarchs, the enslaving of the Israelites in Egypt, God's delivering them from bondage, God's making covenant with them in Sinai, followed by the uh, conquest of the promised land of Canaan. Uh, Canaan excuse me. The Israelites' frequent sins and in increasing disloyalty. God's patient protection of and pleading with them the ultimate destruction of the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, and the restoration of the holy people after their exile. And then, after that, there's 400 years of biblical silence. And then we have, we have the story of the New Testament that comes in, which we will deal with on another day. So that's those top two levels. Now the final, the first level narrative are comprised of hundreds of individual narratives that make up the other two levels. That includes both compound narratives, for example, Genesis narrative of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph as a whole, and the small units that make up the larger narrative. So we have stories such as the story of Joseph. Okay? The story of Joseph is an incredible story. And interestingly enough, if you look at the story of Joseph, you will find principles and um, patterns that represent the other two, the, the, covenant, the covenant narrative and the meta-narrative of God's redemption. You're going to see in that little microcosm of a story, you're going to see themes and stuff like that that, that that fill out the other two. We should always read the individual stories with a mind towards the other two levels. How is this individual story? You know, when I'm dealing with a story about a woman driving a, a, a tent peg into the temple of somebody, that's in there, by the way. Did you know the Bible's pretty brutal? Yeah, the tent peg story. That's one of those stories. How does that fit into this? That's how you need to tackle those difficult stories. What does it say about sin about the problem of, of man, about, 
about the redemptive story of God's word. These stories are not to be emulated. I guess I should say this. They shouldn't be considered to be something that we can just uh, plug and play. So if you have an enemy, you shouldn't drive a tent peg into their forehead. <laughs> you know, that's not what we're talking you know, or, or, you know, we have to be careful that we don't take what happened to that person who did that thing and say, if I do that thing, I will get the same results. It's more principle that we have to take into consideration. What was the heart? What was going on there? Because we have to remember that the Old Testament was written to a particular people in a particular time that we are not in anymore. But the principles that come out of those narratives will help us understand the fullness of what God is trying to say in his redemptive story. That's a lot. You with me still? Everybody, everybody you need a Snickers or something? You good? They're like, oh, I'll have Snickers. Uh, <laughs> so let's, let's, let's move on to the law. So this is so important, these, these understandings, because the awareness of the hierarchy of narratives will help you. But let's go into the law. Now, there's a lot of law in the Old Testament, right? There's a lot of, like, rules and do's and don'ts uh, that we're like, well, how does that apply to me? Like, you shouldn't wear clothes that have multiple different types of fabric in them. Okay? How does, that, how does that apply to me? Should I just skip over that section? Interesting. Okay, so let's talk about the law. In order to appreciate the role of the Old Testament law and Scripture, we need to face two important things at the outset. Two things that cause confusion brought about by law, quote-unquote law, language in the Bible. In the, in the Bible. In the Holy Bible. Hard stop. Let's reset. <laughs> law language in the Bible itself. First, let's deal with the word law. Okay? Itself, the word law itself has more than one connotation when it's used throughout Scripture. I'm going to give you a few connotations about law. First, in the plural, it refers to the 600 plus specific commandments that the Israelites were expected to keep. These are the things like, you know, you can't walk farther than so-and-so on the Sabbath, such-and-such a distance on the Sabbath, or don't wear fabric that has multiple kinds of threads. Don't boil a goat's in its mother's milk. How many people have done that recently? I think you're safe from that one. Not boiling a goat in its mother's milk. (laughs) Anyway. Those are those. Those are the laws, the commands that the Israelites, were spe- the Israelites specifically were asked to keep by God. Okay? Number two, in the singular, it is to refer to all of these laws collectively. So in Matthew chapter 18, which we're going to talk about today, there's this concept of uh, the law. Jesus just uses the words the law, and it's referring to uh, all that stuff. Not, not each individual one. He's just lumping them together as a singular word, meaning all of that stuff. Number three, also in the singular, to refer to the Pentateuch, Genesis through Deuteronomy, as the book of the law. Okay? So Genesis through Deuteronomy, the first five books of your Bible, they dealt with 
creation through the Abrahamic covenant, through the exile, I mean, through the captivity of slavery in Egypt, through the Mount Sinai experience and the law presentation from Mount Sinai. And they, they, were, they were revered, that, the Pentateuch was revered as like God's spoken word to the people of Israel. Okay? So that sometimes the book of the law, that's what it's talking about. And then fourth, in the singular again, thought, uh, throughout the New Testament to refer to the entire Old Testament religious system. So when, when authors in the New Testament talk about the law, they're lumping the entire Old Covenant, the Old Covenant that Jesus, well, we'll get into that in a second, that Jesus changed, not really changed, but that's nah, kind of hard to say. We'll get into it. But they're talking about that whole system, sacrificial system, the law system, all these types of things. So there's different ways in which writers in the uh, scriptures will refer to the law, and it means all that stuff. So you have to decipher are they talking about the, in, the number one, the individual laws? Are they talking about the, uh, the Old Covenant? Are they talking about the Pentateuch? Are they talking about this religious system? So when you're reading, try to decipher that. It's helpful. The goal today is to help you to read, understand, and appreciate what the many uh, stipulations God gave Israel meant for them, for them, and how we best read them into our lives today. Which brings us to our second thing or problem we have to consider. And it's a good question. I think it's probably on the tip of your brains as well. How do any of these specific legal formations apply to me? How do these things apply to me? Or do they? Do they even apply to me? Hmm. Interesting. It's a good question. Glad you asked it. Because this is a crucial matter, we must continue to use Jesus as our Rosetta Stone in interpreting all the law and the prophets. Okay, quickly, turn to your Bible to chap uh, chapter 5 of Matthew. Chapter 5 of Matthew, we're going to start in verse 1. Our passage today has sometimes been misunderstood or even misinterpreted in the history of the church. How you interpret this passage will dictate your level of legalism. Now, what does legalism mean? It means how you apply the law. Right? So how you read, how you interpret this passage will impact your level of legalism. How much, how it ad adhered to the uh, Old Testament law you have to be. So it's important to know. The temptation is to place too much focus on the fact that Jesus did not abolish the law, while not enough focus on his place and how he fulfills the law. It is located in the midst of the Sermon on the Mount, right at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, a sermon where Jesus, at, the, at, the, uh, at least at times, ups the ante. At times, Jesus ups the ante on certain teachings from the law of Moses. So he's like, well, pastor, if he's upping the ante, doesn't that mean more legalism? Mm -hmm, good question. You guys are on it today. So I was going to read all this to you, but I'm, I'm going to, for the sake of time, I'm going to cut it down a little bit. So the first part of the Sermon on the Mount is what we call the Beatitudes. Okay, you can see it if you have a written in red, 
a letter edition, you're going to see this is, the, this is Jesus speaking. Okay? And it has things like, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn. It, it just goes through all these things. And they're all counterintuitive. You know, blessed are those who are persecuted. Oh, man, I don't want to be persecuted. But the Bible says, blessed are you when you're persecuted. You are blessed when they insult you. Ha! Huh. I was talking to some people the other day in our uh, Colossians class, and we're saying, sometimes we're so adverse to being persecuted that we, have, we avoid it at all costs. But the Bible says, by your level of persecution, you will know how effective you're being for the gospel. If you've never been persecuted for the gospel, there might be a problem with your testimony. Ooh. Jesus assumes, and the apostles assume, a level of criticism, of, of uh, persecution. Then he goes into this section. I think it's really important because it talks about how um, we have a job to do. What is our job? So this is verse 15, uh, 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how can it be made salty? It is no longer good for anything. It would be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. We're saying if you, if you have a job to do and you don't do it, then you're, it's kinda, you're kind of useless to the, to the cause. Salt has a particular function. It seasons and preserves. But when you take a piece of salt in your hand, if it, it doesn't do those things, what is it? It's just, it's just dirt. It's not really good for anything. That's a, that's a, that's a, Jesus is giving some tough statements here. Okay? He says, you're the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand. It gives light to the whole house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. And also, you'll be persecuted. <laughs> some will be gravitate like moths to a flame. And others are going to hate you for it. And it's all good. All right. This is the part we want to really focus in on today for the sake of this message. It says this, verse 17. Don't think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. But to fulfill. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of the pen will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does, uh, who, but whoever does and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless you... Now, this is, this, is the, this is the fulcrum point of the statement. Ready? This is the fulcrum point. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. Okay, this is where I want to stop because he's really talking about... He, he says, this is all very important. This is all good. And you have to do these things. And if you don't do these things better than the best who've ever done them, you will not even get into the kingdom of heaven. Ugh. 
That's over. I mean, he is really laying it on thick, and he's he's getting them to this point where they're he, they're over. He's overwhelming them on purpose. He was a master teacher. Then he goes on in the meat of his sermon, the next few verses, uh, six times in chapter five alone. Jesus makes a statement like this: "You have heard it said." He, he says, "So you have heard in the law. You've heard they, they grew up with this stuff. This is this is like mother's milk to them." Um, You've heard it said. And then he goes on to talk about different things. He says, you've heard it said, don't murder. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. Don't divorce a spouse out of convenience. Don't break your oath. Don't seek um, comparable reparations for evil. Don't hate your enemy. And then he goes on, but I tell you. So he's taking the law that Moses gave, and he's going, you've heard it said this way, but I tell you, and then he ups the ante on him. He makes him harder. Why does Jesus make the, you say, Jesus was a legalist. (laughs) Why does Jesus take the already difficult commandments that these people are struggling to keep and then say, well, guess what? Don't commit adultery. You've heard it said don't commit adultery, but I tell you, if you look upon a woman in a lustful way, you've already committed adultery with your heart, and you're not right with God. You've heard it say, don't murder. I tell you, if you say to somebody, you're a fool, then you've already committed murder in your heart, and you're not right with God. Why is he taking the Old Testament, which is so hard to keep, and making it harder? I'm going to give you a little insight. Because he was there at the beginning. The word was with God, and the word was God. Everything that was created was created by him. And nothing that was uh, not created was created. See, the thing is this. He knew what humanity was supposed to be like. And he goes on later and says, the law was given to you because of your hardness of heart. This was a function of civilization. This was not how I wanted you to live. I don't want you to hate your brother. I don't want you to murder your brother. I don't even want you to hate your brother. I don't want you to commit adultery. I don't even want you to look at a person as a thing. They're a person. They hold the image of God in them. You shouldn't look at them as an object to be desired. This is the heart of God. And I'm going to tell you, if you thought it was hard to keep Moses' law, wait till you try to keep my law. You can't do it. You can't do it. It's impossible. That's the whole point. It's impossible. Verse 20 says this. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not get into the kingdom of heaven. And everybody in the audience said, we are doomed. Because they're the ones we're looking up to as people who are probably going to be okay when they stand before God. And we're saying, and and we're less than that. We're we're nervous about our eternal salvation. We're nowhere near the righteousness of these people over here. And you're saying, we got to be better than them? This is, this, is, this is the cause of the people to go. And that's the whole point. The law is given to us so to, to shine a spotlight on our depravity. To shine a spotlight on our inadequacy. To shine a spotlight on our sin. So that we can realize that there's nothing I can do. Nothing I can do. Nothing I can do. 
to redeem myself from this, this uh, place I find myself. So Jesus Christ fulfills the law and the prophets. What we know today is the Old Testament scriptures in several ways. Let me tell how Jesus fulfills the law. He fulfills the Mosaic hopes of Israel and God's overarching redemptive plan for the entire world. Okay, Jesus fulfills the Old Testament sacrificial system, which is sometimes referred to as the criminal law, excuse me, ceremonial law, though it is once and for all sacrifice and atonement on the cross. He fulfills the law and perfect, uh, perfectly obeying the righteous requirements of that law on our behalf. He's the only one who's able to do it. You can't do it, I can't do it, Jesus did. He also fulfills the law in the sense that he interprets it and applies it correctly. Remember, he was there when creation was made, when humans were created. He knew how he wanted the function. I've used this analogy before, but when the designer designs something in a certain way, when, it, when you use it in that function, it usually works pretty well. But if you take your dishes and put them in the washing machine, you will get them clean. But it's going to come out in pieces. It wasn't designed for that. You put your clothes in the clothes washing machine and you put your dishes in the dishwasher. They're designed for two specific reasons. So Jesus knew, because he was there at the beginning, how he wanted humanity to live. And even the law didn't quite match up. So Jesus fulfills that. In verse 18, Jesus upholds the authority of the law for all times. It is important to understand, however, that it is not so much the law itself that, he, that is lasting, but his personal fulfillment of it. For the Christian, the Old Testament is authoritative as far as it is understood and interpreted in Christ. The Old Testament sacrificial system is, is, is a great example of this. We're not still sacrificing animals for our for redemption of sins. Unless you have a little altar in your backyard, I don't, you know. But that, we don't do that anymore. We don't do that anymore. Why? Because Jesus fulfilled the sacrificial system in his own body. He said, the Bible says very clearly, the blood of Goats and lambs could never wash away our sin. They weren't, they weren't pure. Jesus was pure. He was the ultimate sacrifice. And his sacrifice fulfills the whole Old Testament sacrificial law. As new covenant believers and sound interpreters of Scripture, we need to be able to discern which teachings of the Old Testament are still applicable and which are no longer applicable. Okay? So... That's why it's so important to, uh, to apply those different narrative, narratives to what we're reading, all right? Uh, the best way to do this is by, uh, by using as a confirmation the New Testament. We're going to talk about the New Testament next week a little bit more. But the New Testament is our, so if the Bible is our, our manual for life, the New Testament is our commentary for understanding the Old Testament. Does that make sense? If, without the New Testament, the Old Testament 
uh, for us is, is just going to be confusing. We have to look at the New Testament to help us to interpret or to understand how the Old Testament is used on a current uh, contemporary manner. Okay? The Old Testament precept is reinforced by Jesus and his apostles that is still relevant today. If not, it may be obsolete. So if you see Jesus confirming uh, something out of the Old Testament, or you see the apostles confirming something out of the Old Testament, that's something that we need to hang on to. But if, if, if Jesus does not confirm it, or if the uh, apostles don't confirm it, then it may be obsolete to uh, the new covenant life. Okay, Hebrews 18, excuse me, Hebrews 8.3 says this, by saying a new covenant, he has declared that the first is obsolete. And what is obsolete and growing old is about to pass away. Jesus himself puts it this way. In Matthew 9, 17, he says this. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the skins burst and the wine spills out and the skins are ruined. No, they put new wine into fresh wineskins and both are preserved. The old covenant cannot hold the new covenant. It is obsolete to be, it is in, in, unable to carry the new covenant. It needs to be put into new framework. That's why we have two covenants. All right? So I encourage all believers, especially new believers, yeah, especially new believers, to start with the New Testament. If you want to read the Bible, start with the New Testament. Get into some books that are pretty straightforward. Um, Mark is a great gospel. We just, we just came out of studying Mark. It's a great gospel to start your study with. Um, one of the uh, epistles is great for you to, to, to read is the book of James. It's very straightforward. And as you read the New Testament the, and, and, and you study in tandem some of the things in the Old Testament, they will start to make more sense. I have had it multiple times where people come to me, they're pretty new Christians, and they're like, Pastor, I got through like Genesis, and I got into Exodus, and then I got into Leviticus, and I, I just couldn't go anymore. And I'm like, that's, that's understandable. <laughs> because, you know, just because we usually read books from left to right doesn't mean that this book should be read that way. I would start in the New Testament, read some really good books. If you have any need for study help on that, there are so many resources. Uh, the YouVersion Bible app, great resource. Write that down. If you, don't, if you want something to help you to, to dive into Scripture for the for a first time or, or you need something fresh and new, YouVersion Bible app, great place to find some stuff. If you're more like a, I want paper in my hands, Come see me. I got stuff for you. Okay? And in fact, on that note, I want to say, if you are a, new, a newer believer and you don't have a paper, words written on it, and ink Bible, come see me after service and I have one for you. Okay? I, I believe everybody should have a Bible that they, a go-to Bible. Now, I know you have your phones and all that stuff, but I won't get into my conspiracy theory about digital media. But it's hard to change things once they're in print. Make any sense? It's hard to alter things subtly when it's in print. Okay? So let's, let's, let's land this, this plane right now, okay? 
use the New Testament to help you have a better understanding on the Old Testament. So some of the questions, I'm just going to give you some of the things that come up. Pastor, God seems like two different people in the two Testaments. In the Old Testament, he seems very angry. In the Old Testament, he, he, he seems very wrathful. In the New Testament, he seems very gracious and loving. And I say, yes. But you're missing one key element. Every bit of wrath that you read in the Old Testament was poured out on his son Jesus in the New Testament. Did you know that we don't need to really be afraid of Satan? You know, we always talk about Satan as the, as the one we could be worried about. I'm going to make a very controversial statement. Let me say this. Ready? Who you need to be afraid of is God. What? That doesn't sound very New Testament. Oh, it's not. The righteousness of God is a very, very terrifying, scary thing because you're never going to measure up. I'm telling you, the Old Testament is humans' inability to reach the righteousness of God or even care about the righteousness of God, and that's why you have all these bad things happening. You know that God is, is the God of war? He is. He told, his, he told the Israelites to go to war. Did you know that God in the Old Testament and in the New Testament is the God of plagues? That doesn't sound like a New Testament. Oh, it does if you understand the righteousness and the holiness of God that you will never appease. That's why Jesus came. That's why Jesus came. Because of the person of Jesus Christ, we can now stand before our holy God for whom we should be plagued and warred and destroyed because of our sinfulness. We live in a great, the age of grace, and what that has done over 2,000 years is caused us to believe that sin is not bad. Oh, well, certain sins are. God's like, I can't even be around sin. It's so, it's so other. But that's why I sent my son. To fulfill the Old Testament law, and to when you accept his sacrifice on your behalf, God, a righteous, holy uh, just God doesn't see you through the lens of your sin anymore. He sees you through the fulfilled Old Testament sacrifice of Jesus. And now you can have fellowship with a righteous, holy God once more. Can anybody say amen? That's the difference. He is the same God from cover to cover, but Jesus changes our relationship with that God. Does that make sense? He's the same God. He's still holy. He's still righteous. But Jesus changes our relationship with that holy God, and that is the good news. That is the gospel, that once you were underneath the thumb and the foot of this righteous God, but now Jesus took that on himself, and now you are right before God. That is good news. So when he says, you used to hear it said this way, but I say, we gotta, it's even harder than that. He's saying, what he is saying is this, I want you to know today that as hard as you try to keep the letter of the law, you will 
not be able to. And that's why I came. I came to take that pressure off your shoulders. Because even if you kept the law of Moses, that was not the original intent of humankind. I was there when it was written. I was there when it was created. And this is not what we were looking for. We being Trinity. So as hard as you try, you will never, but Jesus. But Jesus came. And he says, he says to you and me, take my yoke upon you. My way is easy. My burden is light. He said, I'm going to take the whole burden of the law, I'm going to put it on my shoulders, and I'm going to give you the easy grace path. Man! Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Matthew 1.14, it says this. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory, the glory of the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That's the fulcrum point. That's the fulcrum point of the Testaments. Verse 16. Indeed, we have all received grace upon grace from his fullness. What does that even mean? You received the law. That was grace. That was in, in that in that uh, time, that was grace for you because you could actually have a level of fellowship with God. But in Christ, we've received grace upon grace from his fullness. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Came through Jesus Christ. So, the Old Testament today is something I want you to read. Oh, that's the wrong book. There we go. That's better. The, <laughs> the Old Testament is something I want you to read, but I want you to read it with understanding to how it applies to you today. And you cannot read that book without using the Rosetta Stone of Jesus Christ to help you to interpret what it means for you today. There's good stuff in there. It's good stuff. He said, I, not even one dotted I or cross T will fade away of the Old Testament. But how do we use it? We use it in light of grace and truth that Jesus brings. Lord, I thank you for this opportunity we have today to, to, to dig a little deeper today into what the Word is for us, what the Bible is for us. God, I thank you for the patience of my brothers and sisters today that went down a little academic uh, jaunt with me. But God, I pray at the end of the day, Lord, we would see you on every page. That we would see what we've been saved from by your grace. When we look at the Old Testament and we see the difficult portions of Scripture, the, the wrathful points, portions of Scripture, we would see that that's where we belong, but for the grace of Jesus. Help us to see you on every page so that we can understand in its fullness this manual for life that you've given us. So Lord, we ask you this to, to help us to better understand. And Lord, I pray right now, Lord, that you would allow us as we read, as we study, as we uh, meditate on your word, that your Holy Spirit would enlighten our hearts to how Jesus is the key to understanding all of it. 
Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I hope you enjoyed our podcast today. To find out more about New Life Church or to plan a visit, go to our website at discovernewlife.org.